If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. This is a continuation of our last episode, so if you haven't listened to the rest of the Augusta series thus far, you're going to want to hit pause and go and do that. So, last time, we left Agrippina the Elder riding high, showing up Roman soldiers on the field of battle. But not everyone loves her and her husband's growing fame. Aggie and her family are about to face some serious hurdles, and there are going to be some life-changing decisions to be made. Grab a curse tablet and get ready to start some whisper campaigns. Let's go traveling. First, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Magdalena, Gabby, Sarah H, Patricia, Sarah K, Robert, Megan R, Mary Lou, Kiara, Kira, Adelaide, and Jennifer P. My newest lady presidents, Detra, not Petra like I said in the last episode. Sorry about that. I'm going to blame autocorrect. Carrie, Paige, and Krista. My boss ladies, Kimberly, Eva, and Annie. My adventuresses, Kira, Karen, Jessica S., Samantha, Lizzie, Kelly, Iris, and Alexis. My warrior queen, Avery, and my lady, Pharaoh Courtney. Thank you and much love to all of my patrons. Becoming a patron of the show goes a long way to keeping it going and growing. Plus, you get access to exclusive bonus episodes, mini-sodes, sneak peeks, discounts on merchandise, special prizes, and more. Join before the new year and you'll get a very fancy Digital Explores 2021 calendar. To find out all about it, just go to my website. And now, back to Ancient Rome. Back in Rome, Tiberius is getting more anxious about Germanicus's power by the day. It seems like Livia isn't too thrilled with Agrippina's behavior, either. Some sources make it out like she doesn't like Agrippina, this young woman brazenly stepping into the public sphere and shaping it to her liking. She and Tiberius are worried by the kind of sway she seems to have with the troops. It's just a year into his emperorship, and Tiberius is already unpopular. If ancient Rome had popularity polls, Tiberius's numbers would be in the toilet for sure. But Livia's power only seems to grow with her position as imperial gatekeeper and hostess. 
Much like certain first sisters of American presidents will step in to serve as unofficial first ladies if the president is a bachelor, Tiberius's continued unwedded bliss means that Livia acts as both empress and as a sort of dowager queen. She conducts her own official correspondence, writing to client kings on official business. Sometimes Tiberius's letters arrive addressed to both him and Livia. One time, the Spartans write Tiberius to say that they're starting up a cult of the divine Augustus, and they also write a separate one to Livia. As if to say that, look, Tiberius is the emperor, but we all know who really wears the toga around here. More than that, Livia has become an important patron to Rome's most powerful senators. She does her own version of the morning salutatio, when Roman men go over to each other's houses for meetings, striking deals and asking for favors. Let me stress, this is not usually a female-run activity. Livia may not be able to go to the Senate, but that doesn't mean the Senate can't come to her. Dr. Rad has an interesting point to make about Agrippina the Younger, but I think it's worth sharing here as we chat about one of the women who paved the way for her. I think her clients are incredibly important, and it's something that could be very easily overlooked in a way because I don't think even someone who studied Rome as long as you and I have, you still don't automatically think of women as having clients because they are still disadvantaged in this society in terms of the rights that they have. But they do, you know, these these important women like Agrippina and you know other wealthy elite women, they absolutely have their own clients. Um, and that takes on a, a whole new dimension when you're part of the imperial family. They come in droves because there isn't any better patron to score than rich and influential Livia. She gives them money for their daughters' dowries and sometimes even adopts their sons, lending them her lofty status. Ovid, who Augustus had exiled for writing some satire a little too sassily for his liking, writes home to his wife to go see Livia and beg his case. If she's busy with something more important, put off your attempt and be careful not to spoil my hopes. But he also adds that Livia is no wicked Procne, or Medea, or savage Clytemnestra, or Scylla, or Circe, or Medusa with snakes knotted in her hair. If you met some of these mythical lady monsters in my bonus episode on Greek mythology, then you'll know this is a not-that-subtle dig at Livia, especially at what is seen as perhaps a monstrous kind of womanly power. I think we need to appreciate that women had managed to accrue a certain level of soft power in the late Republic particularly and the early Empire already. You know, you look at your, you know, your Clodias, your Fulvias, your Livias, you know, people had managed to accrue a certain amount of soft power. So whilst it's obviously a bit of a tightrope walk in terms of how women manage that position, I kind of think you need to understand that it is possible to have a relative amount of power in, in a system where you are actively disadvantaged officially. Tacitus seems to think there's something monstrous about how she uses that power to help her favorite ladies. When her friend Plautia Urgulania finds herself called to a court she owes money to, she refuses the summons and takes refuge with Livia, creating a scandal that only ends when Livia steps in and pays the debt. Is this a female power move or an abuse of her position? The ancient sources say the latter, but I think it shows that Livia isn't afraid to use her unique position to help women in a system that doesn't give them much of a voice to speak with. That said, she doesn't speak for them all. And of course, not everyone loves this turn of events. A woman pulling the strings? No thank you!
She had become puffed to an enormous extent, wrote Cassius Dio, surpassing all women before her. Cassius isn't the only one feeling salty. Tiberius, too, is growing weary of his overbearing mom. He vetoes a push to rename the month of October as Livius. Yes, honey. But he does allow her birthday to be celebrated as an official Roman holiday. He knows how important a role she plays in keeping the myth of Augustus alive, legitimizing his place within it. It's around this time that statues of her start becoming softer, younger, almost goddess-like. And she starts to appear on Roman coins. An emperor has to be careful about having too many statues of himself looking godlike, but the women of his family are a different story. By taking likenesses of the goddesses of fertility, the harvest, and motherhood, and carving them with Livia's face, she becomes more an idea than a threatening reality. But she also becomes more than just the emperor's mother. They blow up her image and make it larger than life. Idealized and eternal, she becomes as much a symbol as an actual person. A mother not just to Tiberius, but to us all. Agrippina's likeness is also finding its way into sculpture. The more children she has, the more prevalent her image becomes, her representations looking less and less like Livia's own. They show a strong, striking woman with thick waves and curly locks, a symbol of youth, of the next generation. Move over, Livia. Here's the new mother of the empire. And ancient sources suggest that Livia doesn't like it. Not one little bit. But also, the ever more paranoid Tiberius has had it up to here with Germanicus. What are we going to do about his growing fame? Well, first, he has to suck up his feelings and celebrate it. So he calls Germanicus back in 17 CE in order to throw him a big old triumph. These military parades slash raucous street parties aren't thrown for just anyone. They're a big deal, meant as a celebration of one's military greatness. Another great thing. By custom, the great general's sons get to ride in his triumphal chariot alongside him. But in a new move that suggests some interesting things about a woman's changing place in the empire, his daughters Agrippina the Younger and Drusilla get to ride with him too. Then Tiberius slaps Germanicus on the back and says, Great job, Germ. I think it's time we gave you a promotion. He sends him out into the east with a Senate-approved supreme authority. This sounds good, but really it's a kind of demotion. It gets Germanicus out of the field and out of the heart of the action, and into what's essentially a diplomatic role, where Germanicus and Agrippina the Elder are meant to meet with governors, kiss babies, and generate goodwill. In some ways, you could say that Germanicus just got benched beside the water cooler. But then again, remember what happened the last time we sent a popular Roman into the East with this kind of authority? Oh right! Mark Antony and Cleopatra totally blew everything up! Since he's being forced away from Rome, Germanicus and Aggie decide they might as well make it a fun family vacation. They stop in at the site of Actium to pay tribute to Germanicus's fallen ancestor, Mark Antony. They stop at Lesbos, Sappho's old island home, where Agrippina gives birth to another daughter, Lavilla. You have to wonder if she thinks of her mother Julia here. She too went with her husband on a tour of the Mediterranean. She too gave birth while traveling and not so far from here. And now it's her name that is being carved into placards praising her childbearing prowess. Oh, the intoxicating freedom and power. 
Then the family heads toward Egypt. They take a cruise down the Nile and a walking tour through Alexandria, inspiring love and statues and all sorts of gray PR. And then they get a quick call from Tiberius. Yo, I distinctly remember saying that no senator could enter Egypt without my permission. Sorry, Tiberius, I can't hear you. I can't hear you, mate. The line's pretty bad. Egypt is Rome's crown jewel, providing much of its grain supply. And since Cleopatra died, it's basically belonged to the Emperor Augustus. If any one general were to take it, they could take everything. That's why there's an order in place that says that no general can go in without the Emperor's permission. There's nothing to say that Germanicus and Agrippina do this to piss Tiberius and Livia off, but they must know it's going to. But this trip isn't all lotus flowers and pyramids, because some serious trouble is brewing. In Syria specifically, one of the areas Germanicus is supposed to be running. The governor there, who Tiberius just so happened to appoint at the beginning of Germanicus's journey, is a guy named Calpurnius Piso. His wife, Munatia Plancina, is a good friend of Livia's. Coincidence? Many think not. The official line is that the Emperor sends them to help Germanicus out and support him in the region, but the whispers say their real task is to watch the pair and cause as much trouble as possible. Tacitus says that Plancina is sent specifically by Livia, whose feminine jealousy was sent on persecuting Agrippina. Yes, Tacitus, blame it on a rational emotion. If true, I think the ever-calculating Livia makes this move hoping to slow down Germanicus and Agrippina's rise to power and give her unpopular son some room to move. This whole episode is clouded with rumor and supposition, but one thing is clear. Piso, Germanicus, and their wives do not get on. When they get back to Syria after their Egypt trip, Piso refuses to follow any of Germanicus's instructions. Plancina steps into roles meant to be Agrippina's, openly berating her in front of the troops. Tensions are high, the atmosphere is sour, tempers are fraying. And then, all of a sudden, Germanicus gets sick. Really sick. <laughs> We have no idea what he really dies of, but Germanicus immediately suspects that Piso's poisoned him. They even find evidence of black magic in their house, some potent evidence as far as the Romans are concerned. They take their curses quite seriously. Here's Dr. Rad and Dr. G. And curses also sort of function a bit like gossip mm. in the ancient world. So we know that they're given quite a bit of credence. Um, and we know from the evidence that we found for curses that they can get pretty petty as well. Absolutely. You know, the sorts yeah. of things that you might curse upon somebody else. Whoever steal my shoe <laughs> will return it, otherwise their toenails will dry up and they will kill over dead on a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> so be it. Let yeah. me know to all of the gods of the underworld that this is my wish. Um, follow this person around and make sure it happens. Exactly. Um, so the course, curses can be pretty petty, um, but they also, I would imagine, easily falsifiable. We can only imagine Agrippina's feelings as she clutches his hand, watching her husband and protector waste away, powerless to stop it. We can imagine her rage when he looks at her with fading eyes and says to Forget her pride, submit to cruel fortune, and back in Rome to avoid provoking those stronger than herself by competing for their power. Privately, he begs her to beware of Tiberius and Livia. They're behind this. If you're not careful, they will come for you. 
At age 33, Germanicus dies, leaving his wife and six children behind him. As she burns his body, his words must ring in her ears. Don't act up, keep your head down, don't get angry. But Agrippina is angry. There are two roads before her now. One would have her a good and proper Roman matron, like Octavia, quietly submitting to her fate. The other is paved in her own desires, her own ambitions, her own will to see vengeance done. She knows that Tiberius was behind her husband's murder, and she wants something done about it. She's used to being adored, and she's grown used to being powerful. And quiet submission has never been her style. In 19 CE, she packs up her kids and her husband's ashes and starts to make her way back to Rome. The journey takes about three weeks, and during it, the news travels fast. Germanicus is dead. The level of mourning for Rome's favorite hero is off the charts, and it only seems to be picking up steam. Plancina even puts on colorful clothes, say the whispers, as if in celebration. But who else would want Germanicus dead? The Dowager Empress, perhaps? Definitely the Emperor. So by the time she steps off that boat in Brundisium, Agrippina is tired, grief-stricken, but also full of an undying fury. It burns in her like the hottest kind of flame. She doesn't bother hiding it from the crowds she's picked up along her journey. Agrippina the Elder shares many things with her grandpa Augustus, and one of them is a genius for optics. She wants Rome to rally behind her, and so she gives them a vision to rally behind. It doesn't help that neither Tiberius or Livia show up at the port to welcome her home and offer their condolences. It's conspicuous, to say the least. And of course, all the people on Team Livia Poisoned Everybody Ever thinks that she had some hand in his death. But no matter. As Tacitus says, Aggie is impatient of anything that postponed revenge. Back in Rome, Agrippina has plenty of friends, and she makes no secret of her suspicions. She and her faction want Piso brought to trial, and the hatred for him is so intense that Tiberius can't save him. But Plancina, now that's a different kettle of fish. She's hated too, but Livia starts making calls, pulling strings, taking senators aside for a little private talking to. Again, it seems like Livia might just have more power than her son does, because after two days of questioning, Plancina's let off. Though she has no official power, her word truly matters. The ancient sources are always trying to paint a rivalry between Agrippina and Livia, saying they hate each other for stepping on each other's toes, when really, we don't know how they feel. But Agrippina cannot be happy about this. There's evidence that Livia, Antonia, Agrippina the Elder, and Germanicus's sister, Livilla, are all given some power over the list of honors to go to Germanicus. Though Tiberius has the final say, they're actively involved in what is in many ways a senatorial duty. One of these is a triumphal arch that will be put up in the city, featuring not just Germanicus and the men in his family, but all the ladies. It's the first evidence we have of women other than Octavia and Livia being immortalized in stone within the boundaries of the city. But this collaborative project does nothing to heal the festering wounds within the family. On the day of the funeral, Tiberius is forced to endure a raucous roar of love and approval, not for him, but for Agrippina. We're not just talking about some really loud clapping here. They're shouting her name, calling her the glory of her country, the only true descendant of Augustus. Oh my. 
This is not keeping her head down, and Agrippina knows it. But she isn't ready to step into obscurity. She is Augustus's descendant, damn it, and basically a princess. Nobody puts Agrippina in a corner. The Julio-Claudians being the Julio-Claudians, they all act like they're still friends in public. But we all know that's not how it is behind the scenes. And now we circle back to that Praetorian guard named Sejanus. Picture Iago from Othello or Jafar from Aladdin. That's this guy, forever skulking around in the background, poisonously crafty and ambitious as hell. He wants nothing less than to be emperor in his own right. Over the years, Tiberius has come to rely on him heavily. He's made sure of it, worming his way into the lonely emperor's life, cutting him off from friends and family, trying to alienate him from anyone who might burst his cunning plans. He sets about clearing away any obstacles to his own ambition. And right now, that includes Tiberius's son Drusus and Agrippina's entire clan. It doesn't help that relations between the now 80-year-old Livia and Tiberius are strained to breaking point. They fight more and more, and Tiberius seems increasingly reticent to give her any influence. When he refuses to put forward her chosen candidate for a judge's position, she whips out some of Augustus's old letters, full of mean words about Tiberius. After that, he essentially stops speaking to her, removing her from public affairs and forbidding her to hold a banquet in her husband's honor. Now that's just petty. In 23 CE, Sejanus makes some major moves. First, he starts an affair with Germanicus's sister, Lavilla, who is currently married to Drusus, Tiberius's son. He and Sejanus have long loathed each other. Drusus once punched Sejanus right in the mouth, and you know what? I get it. So one night while they're lounging in bed, feeding each other dormice, Sejanus says, You know what would be great? If we killed your husband. Then I could be emperor when Tiberius dies, and you could be my empress. Good idea? Or so the ancient rumors go. Not long after that, Drusus dies, apparently with Lavilla's help, and Tiberius has no idea what's happened, but he's heartbroken. Then Sejanus asks if he can marry Lavilla, an honor which he's denied. No marrying into the imperial family for you, sir. No problem, we'll stick that one on the back burner. Plan B, destroy Agrippina and all of her children, getting them out of the way. Especially her 16- and 17-year-old sons, who it looks like Tiberius might just adopt as his successors. Then there will be no one left but him to take the throne. But Agrippina has plenty of friends to back her. She fights Sejanus at every turn, using male proxies in the Senate to fight against laws that don't suit her. She has a whole network of people working for her family's interests and doesn't give one poison fig what Tiberius might think about it. She also refuses to keep a low profile. On New Year's Day in 24 CE, there's this religious event where priests publicly pray for the health and well-being of the emperor. Somehow, Agrippina manages to arrange it so that the priests pray not only for Tiberius's health, but also for her sons Nero and Drusus III, without asking Tiberius first. And he is pissed. Sejanus uses the opportunity to remind Tiberius just how uppity and terrible Agrippina the Elder is. He also stirs up a lot of legal trouble, drumming up a bunch of lawsuits against her friends and supporters that cost a lot of money and make them all look pretty bad. Around 26 CE, her cousin Claudia Pulchra is charged with immorality, witchcraft, and conspiring against the Emperor. Agrippina sees this as the personal attack it is and is like, I don't think so. 
She marches over to Tiberius, interrupting him in the middle of a religious sacrifice to Augustus. The man who offers victims to the deified Augustus ought not to persecute his descendants, she supposedly says. It is not in the mute statues that Augustus's divine spirit is lodged. I, born of his sacred blood, am its incarnation. Damn, girl. Tiberius, apparently, answers her tirade with a Greek epigram. It is not an insult that you do not reign. And make no mistake, she would reign if she could. In fact, I think she believes she deserves it. Her fiery speech makes no difference. Claudia is condemned, and Agrippina can do nothing about it. She's once again under constant surveillance, dogged by the shady Sejanus, with all the public love but so little of its power. She's around 40 years old now, and her daughter Agrippina's around 12. It's from her memoir that we get the following story. Agrippina the Elder gets ill, and so Tiberius comes to see her. Silent tears stream down her face as she begs him to let her remarry. She's sick of being alone. She wants a fresh start, a new champion for her and her children. Imagine the bitter sting of it, this woman so sad that she allows herself to beg her enemy for mercy. He is her paterfamilias, after all. Tiberius just sighs, gets up, and walks out. He will never let her remarry. She will have to fight all her battles alone. And Agrippina the Younger will never forget it. There is this bit in Tacitus where he talks about having read her memoirs, and one of the little snippets he gives us is Agrippina the Elder crying because Ta uh, Tiberius won't let her remarry and find a new husband and someone else to obsess about apart from Germanicus. And Ag the fact that Agrippina the Younger chose to record this, it, it just shows that she must, she must have written something down about, you know, this whole, I mean, really it's like a decade of family tension after, I mean, over a decade, really, if you go all the way to the point where, you know, all of them are dead, as in her, her mother and her two elder brothers. It's such an insane thing that she basically spent, you know, so much of her life with all of this going on around her, and yet we just have so little from her perspective. And Livia, it seems, does nothing to stop it. It's easy to get mad at Livia here. You have power, and you're supposed to be a champion of women. You're really going to let your husband's granddaughter languish, essentially under house arrest? Behind the scenes, we don't know what relations are like between Livia and Agrippina. But the fact remains that, as long as Livia lives, Agrippina and her children do too. And as we'll see in a minute, that speaks volumes. Agrippina becomes increasingly paranoid, with Sejanus always whispering that Tiberius is going to poison her, just like he did with Germanicus. So she stops eating at his table. One night, Tiberius tests her by throwing her an apple, which she places untouched before her. She might as well have gotten up and shouted, I don't want your stupid poison apple. After that, things really start falling apart. In 28 CE, Tiberius decides he's over Rome, and the Senate, and the Roman people, and having everyone hate him. It's time to remove himself to Capri to do some sunbathing, Damn it, He's earned it! So that's exactly what he does. And who does he leave to basically run things in his absence? Sejanus, the guy who killed his son, though he still doesn't know it. That same year, Tiberius arranges for 13-year-old Agrippina the Younger to marry a guy named Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus. He's 20 years older, and most definitely not of her choosing. He's rich, and certainly prestigious, but it also sounds like he's a real piece of work. 
Suetonius calls him hateful in every walk of life. Some choice anecdotes about him are that he kills an ex-slave because he's too sober, he rips out someone's eye in the middle of the forum, and he runs over a child in the street with his chariot, just for funsies. That's on top of a whole lot of cheating, lying, and generally being a terrible person. He might not be as bad as the catty Tacitus claims. That guy just loves recording wild pieces of gossip. We don't know what Agrippina the Younger is experiencing in the private confines of her first marriage, but we can imagine it's not all good. And we'll circle back to this later. Let's take a little break so I can introduce you to a podcast I think you're gonna like. Brooke, name three men from history off the top of your head. Uh, Washington, Adams, Jefferson. Okay, now name three women. Uh, um, Tubman. Anthony um, uh, Roosevelt. Eleanor. Okay. It took you longer to name the women. Okay. <laughs> Harsh, but yes. <laughs> One of the biggest reasons that this happens is that there's consistency in the K-12 curriculum on which men need to be taught, and there is no consistency on women. Okay, I don't feel so bad. I'm Kelsey Eckert. I'm a high school history teacher. And I'm Brooke Sullivan, a girl who missed out on a lot of important ladies in school. And together we're creating tools to get women's history in the K-12 classroom. Our podcast, Remedial History, comes out every Monday. Kelsey teaches me a lesson that should be a staple in every curriculum. We're talking themes and important women, and Kelsey tells me the main reasons why these women are skipped over in school. Each week on our website, www.remedialhistory.com, I post an inquiry-based lesson plan for teachers based on our episode, and we found every other lesson plan of worth that's out there and linked them for you. Check it out. You can find Remedial History anywhere you get your podcasts. A year on, still in Rome, Livia's well into her 80s, outrageously old by Roman standards. But now she falls ill, and finally she dies. As wife of the emperor, and then as his mother, she helped shape the budding empire for some half a century. Was she a cold and calculating woman? A secret poisoner? A manipulative harpy? A loving wife and clever strategist? A good and loyal friend? Perhaps she was all of these things because women are also complicated figures who make complex choices and contain many multitudes. There's no doubt that she stayed relevant, powerful, and influential for a very long time. And she helped make a world where Agrippina and her daughters had a chance to become powerful in their own right. R.I.P., you trailblazing lady. Some historians say that Tiberius is sad about his mother's passing. Others say he's like, Oh, finally. Bye, Mom. Tiberius neither paid her any visits during her illness, nor did he himself lay out her body. Cassius Dio tells us, In fact, he made no arrangements at all in her honor, except for the public funeral and images and some other matters of no importance. Yikes. But the Senate is all about honoring Livia. They want to deify her and make all the women of the Empire enter into a full year of mourning for her. But Tiberius is having none of it. He doesn't even come to her funeral. Instead, Gaius is the one who gives her funeral oration, that kid otherwise known as Caligula. And regardless of whether or not she liked Agrippina, Livia clearly had some influence in keeping her alive, because the minute she's gone, Sejanus no longer sees any need to be discreet. 
He writes to Tiberius accusing her and one of her sons of unnatural love and depravity, otherwise known as incest. The people make effigies of Aggie the Elder and Nero, marching them over to the Senate to protest in defense of their beloved family. And so they manage to get away, but only barely. And then we have a missing chunk of the annals by Tacitus, so who knows what happens in the two years they cover. When it picks back up again, Agrippina the Elder and Nero have both been exiled to islands, and Drusus, her other son, is in jail on who knows what charges. The younger kids move in with Antonia, who you'll remember is Germanicus's mother. She is pissed about this whole mess and writes to Tiberius all about Sejanus's many schemes to try and undermine him. He denounces Sejanus in the Senate, has him arrested and taken to prison and then put to death. His family members and many friends follow suit, including Lavilla, who has become his wife by now. We can only hope that Sejanus knew how he ended up getting caught in the end, taken down by a woman after all. But it's too late for Agrippina and her sons. Drusus is reduced to eating the straw of his mattress stuffing, and eventually he starves to death. Nero is given a choice to stab himself with a sword or have someone else do it for him. Agrippina is beaten again and again on her island, once so badly that it's said she loses an eye. Finally, in painful agony and unwilling to let her humiliation go further, she starves herself to death. This proud, headstrong woman who refused to bow to anyone. It's easy to admire her, even if we wouldn't have made the same choices she did. And her end begs the question, what will happen to her other kids, her one remaining son and three daughters? What must Agrippina the Younger, now 16, think as she sees Tiberius burn her family to the ground? Who will she be now without them? How will all this darkness shape the woman she becomes? Here's Dr. Rad and Dr. G. So Agrippina the Younger is only very young, <laughs> very, very young indeed, when her father dies. And then she has to grow up amidst all this tension. But by the time she's getting to be a sort of young teenager, a tween, if you will, uh, things have escalated to such a point that her mother and two elder brothers are falling afoul of the Emperor Tiberius. And they're being brought up on, you know, all sorts of crazy charges, like, you know, homosexuality, potentially, definitely, you know, some sort of conspiracy. I mean, that, that has to have been super dramatic for your, your mother and your two brothers to be sent off into exile and then for them to die years later, never coming back. The drama of all of that happening around her, and yet we have nothing about her reaction to it. it but it has to have affected her. Absolutely. And I think we have to assume that seeing these kinds of events play out is both a warning and maybe also a bit of a training in what is possible and what is not possible absolutely uh, as yeah. a woman in this time period in history this canny young woman will learn many lessons from her mother's mistakes for one that confronting men head-on isn't a wise path to power for a woman and after a lifetime of being told she is the blood of the divine augustus she does want power she feels it's owed her without it men can hurt you even the men in your family, the ones who were supposed to protect you. A woman has to find a way to protect herself. But she wants more than protection. She wants to be the hand that wields authority, or at least the one behind the curtain. To get there, though, she will have to walk along a very thin razor's edge. She is ready to figure out what she needs to do to stay alive and take her place in the Empire's ruling dynasty. 
Perhaps she looks to Livia's memory for tips on how to keep it. In terms of Agrippina's moves and thoughts during this period, the sources are mostly silent. Of course they are! She's a matrona, not an emperor or a general. Why would we need to write anything down about her? All we know for sure is that she's still married to that guy Domitius, and that she's dealing with two sisters-in-law that she most certainly doesn't like. One's called Domitia Lepida, while the other's usually just called Lepida. By the time Agrippina joins the clan, that latter has had a daughter by her first husband, a girl named Messalina. Remember that name, as we'll certainly be coming back for her later. We also know that Agrippina doesn't have any children with her husband in these years, which seems strange for a young Matrona from a very fertile family. Is it that her husband is the horror that certain sources paint him as? Does she have trouble conceiving? Or is it that, for a woman in her family, having a child is usually a politically dangerous game? Under great-uncle Tiberius's reign, any boy child she has would enter the world with a target on his back. The last thing she wants right now is that guy's attention. Without much else to say about Aggie's current existence, we turn back to Tiberius and Aggie's one remaining brother, Gaius, aka Caligula. Let's meet this teenager properly, shall we? Well, hey there. I feel I should start by saying that I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. Some women can't handle my baggage. And it's true, I have a lot of it. You watch most of your family murdered by your creepy great-uncle and see how well-adjusted you are. But I also have a lot of charm, when I'm not trying to kill anyone. And a lot of power, which I try really hard not to use to kill anyone. It's just that so many people annoy me. But not my sisters, they're the best. I get points for that, right? And also, don't call me Little Boot, or I'll probably cut you. I'm going to keep calling him Gaius, except when he's being especially terrible, because I wouldn't want to be known by my childhood nickname for eternity. We already know that Gaius was the youngest boy in the Germanicus clan, a great favorite with his parents and Germanicus's loyal troops. He's lived through all the same horrors as his sisters, his father's suspicious death, his mother's exile, and the deaths of his two older brothers, punished for what is likely nothing more than having a too-powerful name. He's too young to be suspected of anything at the time, so he is spared their fates. He moves with his youngest sisters into Grandma Antonia's house, where he lives in relative isolation kept forcibly out of public life by great-uncle Tiberius, whom he feels sure is responsible for the demise of his parents. Tiberius should probably have thought twice before leaving this angry young man alone to stew. The emperor also refuses to grant him his toga virilis, and that's a big and humiliating deal. Remember that in Rome, your clothes say a lot about you and your status. Roman children wear a bulla, a kind of protective amulet around their necks, that shows everyone who looks that they're still considered kids. But when a boy becomes a man, he's granted his toga virilis, or the toga of manhood, and he gains all the rights and privileges that come with being a Roman citizen and male. It's a big deal, usually ushered in with much pomp and ceremony. Augustus got his toga virilis at just 15, but Gaius won't get it for many years after. He is forced to watch all the other boys become men as Tiberius, nervous about the threat he might pose, keeps him safely tucked into the clothes of childhood. It's humiliating, and it's rage-inducing, and it's a good thing to remember as we walk through all that comes next. 
And then, very suddenly, Gaius is thrown out of his sheltered life into the manhood no one's really prepared him for, sent to stay with Tiberius on the island of Capri. There are a lot of wild stories about what goes on at Tiberius's beautiful cliffside abode called Villa Jovis. Suetonius gives us a lot of lascivious details about what creepy great-uncle Tiberius gets up to. On retiring to Capri, he devised a pleasure for his secret orgies. It only gets worse from there, with stories involving children that I'm just not going to detail here. Sometimes, if his victims complain, he has their legs broken. And, if someone displeases him, he has them flung off a cliff into the sea. Damn, Uncle T. You be crazy. Is any of this true? A lot of people dislike Tiberius at this point. He's basically turned his back on Rome and its people. So there's every reason to blacken his reputation. And our writer Suetonius is probably Rome's biggest gossip, so probably not. At least we hope not. But even without all that debauchery, we can imagine what these years must be like for young Gaius. He's been cut off from what remains of his true family, forced to smile and nod at the man whom he must hate more than anyone in the world. The man that holds his fate, his very life, in his hands. One wrong move and it might be him flying over the clifftops. And then there's also young Tiberius Gemellus, Tiberius's grandson, who is also on the island. Tiberius is either grooming them both as his potential heirs or playing them against each other, making them both bow and scrape for his approval. Gaius must know he is on dangerous ground. In the years when his father Germanicus was learning how to lead, how to fight, how to serve in Rome, Gaius is trapped in a situation that is, at best, tense and occasionally very boring, and at worst, corrupt and abusive. He'll spend eight very formative years here, and they likely have a lot to do with the man he becomes later on in our story. But let's get back to Agrippina. In 37 CE, back in Rome, Agrippina's husband gets embroiled in a nasty court case. A woman is accused of impiety and adultery, and Domitius is called out as one of her many consorts. The list of people pulled into this very public drama is a who's who of the Roman aristocracy, and so the new head of the Praetorian Guard steps in personally to interrogate them. This is the same position Sejanus once held, remember, so it's got the potential to be powerful. Now it's held by a guy named Macro. Before the case can really get going, the 70-something-year-old Tiberius dies. It isn't quite clear how he dies. Gaius will later claim he at least thought about murdering him. Many people whisper foul play, but really, the guy was 77. It also isn't clear whom he meant to follow in his footsteps. Though we think he wanted his grandson Gemellus to rule, he wasn't a stupid man. He would have known the people won't accept him unless he's attached to the much-loved son of Germanicus. He must also have died knowing that, back in Rome, people have grown to hate their emperor. In fact, when he croaks, the people basically throw a party. Instead of mournful processions and prayers, there are cries of, To the Tiber with Tiberius! Suggesting they should throw his body in the river rather than give him a proper funeral. Boy, bye! This cannot be what Livia was hoping for. Then there is also little black sheep Claudius, Tiberius's brother. Remember him? But no one's feeling enthused about that one. And finally, there is Gaius, much-beloved son of Germanicus and descended from the divine Augustus himself. 
But there's also Agrippina and her husband Domitius, who just so happens to be a grandson of Augustus's sister Octavia. He's got about as much claim to the throne at this point as anyone, especially with Aggie by his side. All of a sudden, the accusations against Agrippina's husband are escalating quickly. He's accused of incest with his sister, Domitia Lepida. And now the case seems less about the woman who started it and more about a means of nailing Domitius to the wall. Given that Macro becomes a very chummy, very vocal support of Gaius, we have to wonder if he uses the trial to get Domitius out of the path of succession. Good old Domitius weasels his way out of it, but the whole thing doesn't make him look that good. Is Agrippina involved in these goings-on? We have no idea, because nobody writes about it. But given how canny she will show herself to be later, how ambitious, how resourceful, you have to wonder. Finally, on March 16, 37 CE, Gaius sails back into Rome triumphant to take his place as emperor. The city is generally elated by this 27-year-old beacon of youth and beauty, a tangible piece of the old Rome that everyone wants back. He becomes fast friends with Macro, so he has a personal guard to protect him, and the people welcome him back with open arms. Parades are thrown and wild parties are had. Agrippina, now 21, must be elated. Her beloved brother back in the city, and she and her sisters have just become proper royals once again. Sure, Gaius is completely inexperienced, with no idea how to run much of anything. But he is Germanicus's son, and a direct link to Augustus, so everyone's willing to step back and let him find his way. But the Senate, for one, is going to need some convincing. So, as soon as he arrives, he takes pains to build up both his readiness for rule and his family's greatness. He does this first by sailing off in harsh weather to the islands where his mom, Agrippina the Elder, and his brother Nero died in exile, collects their ashes, and brings them back to be interred in Augustus's mausoleum. It's all very reminiscent of his mom's long and public trek to bring Germanicus back to Rome, and everyone can see the parallel. Oh, how happy Aggie would be to see her children now. Gaius buries her with much fanfare, casting away the shameful stain that Tiberius cast upon her, and even throwing a series of games in her honor, during which he has a statue of her carried in a special litter to the festivities. What a queen! These are all lovely gestures from a son to his mother, but it's also great optics for Gaius and the family. It proves he's a great son and reminds everyone that he's a direct descendant of Augustus on his mother's side. He doesn't want anyone to forget it. But it isn't just his fabulous mama who's rising on Gaius's imperial tide. He also heaps honors on his three sisters, elevating them in ways few women have ever been elevated before. Come on, girl. Climb up onto my lofty pedestal. Sorry, did that sound just a little bit sexual? We'll circle back to that later. He gives them the same honors as the Vestal Virgins. That means special, very visible seats at any gladiatorial games. And they're given a lictor for when they go out and about. That means they're some of the only women in Rome with their own personal bodyguards. And their bodies become sacrosanct. That means they cannot be touched. We've talked before about the unique and potent power that the Vestal Virgins have and the freedoms, and now Gaius's sisters have them too. But then Gaius takes it even further. He has their names added to the oath of allegiance every Roman citizen is supposed to swear to their emperor. 
He also has them added to the official lines that have to be said in the Senate in order to introduce a motion. So instead of concluding every motion with, Fortune favor Gaius Augustus, now they have to include the words, And his sisters. Agrippina, Lavilla, and Drusilla are now firmly embedded in the heart of Roman politics, at least in name. He also has their names and faces put on coins, which is huge, as we've talked about before, and it ties them even more into his emperorship and all that comes with it. All this family propaganda works a treat. The Senate is charmed, the people are elated. Agrippina and her sisters now have a kind of symbolic power that few women in Rome have had before. This same year, Gaius holds the official dedication of the Temple of the Divine Augustus. It happens to fall on his 28th birthday, so he turns Rome into one big celebration. Let's light it up! There are festivals and games, at which Agrippina sits beside her glowing brother as they watch teams of chariots race by. It's easy to imagine her elation, her triumph, as she sits with her siblings, basking in the public's love and in each other. Against all odds, they've survived Tiberius's reign. They are young and beautiful and much beloved. From where she sits, the future's looking pretty bright. And Agrippina has a secret. She's pregnant, and now she doesn't have to worry about what will happen to her child. His place in Rome is assured, and so is hers. For now. But dark clouds will come for Agrippina once more. In fact, they aren't far off. Soon, she will find herself cast into the deepest darkness. How will she find her way back to the light? We'll find out. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like The Explorers, become a patron, tell a friend about it, or leave it a review in your podcatcher of choice. It all really helps the show get discovered and keep it growing. You can also check out my Explorers Etsy shop, where you'll find lady-centric maps, timelines, and women's history art prints made by yours truly. You'll even find ones of the Vestal Virgins, Livia and Agrippina the Younger, which all look pretty fetching when framed up on the wall. If you want to read more about Agrippina, I highly recommend Emma Southen's book about her, which you can find by going to bookshop.org and looking up my Explores bookshelf. I've curated a list of great reads there just for you, and buying through bookshop.org means supporting the Explores, as I get a little kickback, and independent bookstores, so really, it's a win for all. For show notes, including a transcript, lots of images, and a list of my sources, check out theexplorespodcast.com. Much of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Michael Levy, whose songs on recreated lyres from antiquity give us a beautiful glimpse into the ancient world. My social media game is definitely strongest on Instagram, so come find me there at The Explores Podcast. You can also catch me on Facebook, also at The Explores Podcast, or Twitter at The Explores Pod. A thousand thank yous to Mr. Explores for my show art, theme song, and his help producing this episode and the following voiceover legends for their vocal stylings. Catherine Elliott, our beguiling Agrippina. Andrew Dixon, the cranky Tiberius. Paul Gablonski as Germanicus. Sean from Stories of Your and Yours as the Caddy Tacitus. Avery Downing as our Darius Hutonius. And John Armstrong as both Cassius Dio and Gaius, aka Caligula.
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 